0: William James Stillman was nervous as he floated down lower Saranac Lake. His rowing companion, a farmer named Johnson, was a jolly man who'd had a little too much to drink the night before. He had broken into song and sang with such great force he was making the boat rock back and forth. The lily pads swayed violently like a nervous hand holding a cup of coffee. The cattails and the reed grass shook, as if by the hands of a child. Stillman feared his ferryman, and his antics, as he wasn't a great swimmer, and when he could bear the man's antics no longer, lifted his oar over Mr. Johnson's head and threatened to beat him with it, lest he cease. The remainder of Stillman's journey to what is known today as Follensby Pond was uneventful. He was an artist by trade, and a skilled woodsman, He had made numerous trips to the Adirondacks to find inspiration for his paintings and often lodged with Mr. Johnson. Later, he would publish America's first art magazine, The Crayon, and it was the magazine that led him to Cambridge, Massachusetts, in search of funding and subscriptions. It was there that Stillman met James Russell Lowell, a poet, and their friendship morphed into a long excursion into the Adirondack wilderness. In the summer of 1858, Stillman led a group of nine other intellectuals to Fallen to Be Pond. There were poets and doctors, two scientists, lawyers, and a writer. All of them approached the world differently, but they respected the beauty nature offered and how easily it could be romanticized. They called it the Philosopher's Camp. The ten-member party built rough structures that would be their home for a month, and they took in all nature had to offer. They hunted, fished, trapped, canoed, and hiked, and it had an influence on each of their trades. Stillman painted one of his most well-known works from the shores of the pond. Called The Philosopher's Camp in the Adirondacks. It shows two groups of people at a campsite. A small section of them on the right appear to be looking at something off the canvas. While a small group on the left Gathers around a tree stump Looking at a book The man at the center of the painting Is the most famous member of this group He is poet Ralph Waldo Emerson And he would be the first To put the word Adirondack on paper In The Adirondacks Which is Missing the K on the end Emerson details the trip Through a poetic journal Welcome The wood god murmured through the leaves Welcome though late Unknowing, yet known to me. Evening drew on, stars peeped through maple boughs, which o'erhung like a cloud our camping fire. Decayed millennial trunks, like moonlight flecks, lit with phosphoric crumbs the forest floor. Ten scholars wanted to lie warm and soft in well hung chambers, daintily bestowed, lie here on hemlock boughs like sacks and Sioux and greet unanimous the joyful change. So fast will nature acclimate her sons, though late returning to her pristine ways. In the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson, one can almost hear the sounds of loons in the early morning making their call, and the water approaching the shore. There is a melody that is played by the branches and the leaves, and all the world is green and brown. These ten men would bring about a change in the way that nature could be viewed. No longer would the trees be seen solely as a tool of commerce, but as something to be preserved and admired. Follinsby Pond is named for Captain Follinsby, a British captain who fled the country and chose the seclusion the Adirondacks had to offer in 1820. It's unclear why the man left, but he is one of a number of men who chose the solitude of nature. Of these men, as Don Williams stated in his book, Inside the Adirondack Blue Line, it was not uncommon in an Adirondack village to see a bewhiskered, shabby, sometimes smelly old man walking into town. He was quickly identified as the resident hermit at that settlement. Men like Alva Dunning, French Louis, Daniel Wadsworth, and Ebenezer Bowen, to name a few, all haunted their own woods. The most infamous hermit of the Adirondacks was the mayor of Cold River City himself, Noah John Rondo. My name is Rob Kristofferson, and welcome to the Adirondacks. The Northville Lake Placid Trail winds through 138 miles of the Adirondack Wilderness from the Tarbell Road trailhead just east of Long Lake. If you follow the path for nearly 20 miles, it will take you to a small knoll, the site of Noah John Rondo's cabin. Really, he built it to be more like a small city for one man, and as he wrote it in his journals, he was the mayor of Cold River City, Population 1. By all definitions, Rondo was a hermit, an individual who swore off society to live by their own rules and way of life. According to Michael Finkel's The Stranger in the Woods, there are three categories that hermits can be broken down into. The first is the protesters, the people that walk away from society citing economics, war, poverty, or other social issues. The second are the pilgrims the religious hermits, who retreat into solitude as a form of spiritual awakening. Jesus of Nazareth famously lived for 40 days alone in the wilderness, and Muhammad dwelled in a cave near Mecca when his solitude led him to communicate with the angel Gabriel. The third are the pursuers, the ones in search of a creative outlet. They are similar to pilgrims, except they are not religiously motivated. Instead, they seek to hone their art, science, or even to find self-understanding. The most famous example of this is Henry David Thoreau and his time on Walden Pond. The hermit is often viewed through a polarized lens. Sometimes they are seen as wise men with whom to seek counsel, like woodland oracles. Other times they are seen as destitute figures, poor in everything from material goods to sanity. Oh Rondo was neither of these, really. He was born July 6, 1883, near Osable Forks. The oldest of nine children, he grew up on Jackson Hill in Clinton County and left home when he was 15 years old. Not much is known about Noah's early life. He had started to pen some of what he remembered of his youth when he was living on Cold River, but he never finished it. The most distinct memory he had, and one that he devoted pages to, was the wedding of his Aunt Maggie, whom he considered more of a mother than his own. Noah's been described as stubborn, hot-headed, and rebellious, even from a young age. His sister-in-law said of him, He was pretty headstrong, an obstinate young boy. He could charm the birds out of a tree, or turn into a rage. He despised discipline, which his father demanded of him, and as a result, grew up with a hatred for rules. His father was a hard-working miner and a strict Catholic, two forces that influenced how he raised the Rondo children. At the age of 15, Noah left home and settled down in Vermont with family for a number of years. He worked odd jobs such as blueberry picking in order to earn money for schooling. Noah, or Noe to his friends, reminisced in his journal years later, Dated August 7th through 8th, 1963, Wednesday to Thursday. 65 years ago today, the date he refers to was August 8, 1898, I left Jackson Hill, ran away from home, left Peter Rondu, his stick, abuse of me, his religion, his priest, and his fool God. Noah was a smart man, and loved to use capitalization to effect on the page, In that journal entry, every instance of the word his is capitalized, along with the words religion, priest, and fool God. You can read the mockery in each of them. In his obituary in the New York Times in 1967, there is no mention of his parents at all, only a couple brothers and sisters. There are a number of reasons that Noah left home. Aside from the abuse of his father and his disdain for the Catholic Church, He found that getting an education was difficult for him. He spoke French, first and foremost, and being thrown into an environment where they spoke only English was hard. He had to learn a whole new language in order to educate himself. By the time he completed all the schooling he could in Vermont and later in New York, he had received an 8th grade diploma. Noah was a very intelligent man, though. He read everything he could get his hands on, and amassed a library of over 65 books on subjects ranging from astronomy, poetry, philosophy, and science. He housed a copy of Darwin's On the Origin of Species, two Bibles which had been thumbed through thoroughly, and a dictionary, among others. In his early years trying to earn a living, he learned a number of trades, including carpentry, painting, and masonry work. He worked 10-hour days earning no more than $3.50 a day at the most. He moved to Lake Placid in 1912 and rented a building on Greenwood Avenue where he ran a barber shop for less than a year. By 1913, he had become disillusioned with authority and disliked the earning he was making from his barbering business and odd jobs around town. He packed his belongings and moved to the small hamlet of Cory's south of Upper Saranac Lake. Noah worked several odd jobs during his time at Corey's, but for over a decade, worked as a caretaker for a cottage. This afforded him off-season lodging, and we'd take full advantage of it. He ran trap lines, and earned a living as a guide for hunting and fishing parties. He earned a backwoods education in the remote country, which deepened greatly with the friendship of a man named Dan Emmett. He was known as Indian Dan to the local residents of quarries and the surrounding towns, and had the ancestry to prove it, part Frenchman and part Native American. He was a skilled woodsman by trade, and a master craftsman. He hunted with his own bow and arrows, made baskets from sweet grass, and canoes from birch bark. He made a living selling these items to tourists, and acting as a trapper and hunting guide. Noah would refine his skills in the woods under Dan's tutelage. In 1926, the cottage he had been caretaking burnt to the ground, and in it all his possessions. According to Dit Ditmar, a lifelong friend of Noah's, this event was seen as the final straw that led him to a life on the Cold River. He lost a camera and a typewriter, which he hoped to use to write books about woodcraft. In 1928, his guide license was revoked, sending him further and further into the forest, and during his time at Cold River City, would run afoul of the Conservation Commission numerous times. He was arrested twice for game law violations in the early 20s, and once spent three days in jail on second-degree assault charges in connection with the shot he allegedly took at game protector Earl A. Vosberg. There was no trial, however, and Noah went free, unscathed, as he usually did. On november twenty third, nineteen twenty-six, Noah was again tried for game violations, stemming from a deer carcass that was devoid of sex organs. Noah used the trial as an opportunity to publicly state that Vosberg was unfairly targeting him. The six member jury took fifteen minutes to deliberate. Not guilty. Years later, when asked why he retreated into the wilderness, he related to Billy Berger, a reporter with the Adirondack Record, Elizabethtown Post, I hate big business because of its unfairness. A person's opinions are the result of his whole lifetime's experience. I was a Frenchman and went to school very little and was handicapped. I had to learn the English language and was pretty much as you would be if you were thrown into a Chinese school. By the time I was 15, I wanted to see with my own eyes and think with my own mind. At that age, it was a stern fight, and I won. They kept after me, and for 10 years, it was quite a transition. I became absolutely an overcomer. I didn't join any church, but went to a Protestant church steadily. For a period of seven years, I went to a Methodist church in Lake Placid, oftener than the minister. I read the Bible more than any man of my class I ever knew. What I wanted above all was a first-class education. From the time I was 15 until I was 33, I sweat for an education and didn't get it. Because I wanted it, I got more than the average out of my school days. I went back to school after 11 years for a term and made a grade a day for three days and finished 8th grade at the end of the term. I barbered at night in Upper J and went to school in daytime. That was in 1910, when Haley's Comet was parading in view. I had to work for a living. The hours were long and wages were small, but I learned three trades, barbering, painting, and carpentry. At 33, I check up, and I found I wasn't getting along fast enough, so I said with the poet, What care I? So I kicked it over for fair. I was a master at some of my work, and honest 100%, but any reward was always lacking, so I took to the woods. Noah went deeper and deeper into the Adirondack wilderness, until he found his new home on the cold river flow. He was not unfamiliar with the area, and often passed by it during fall trips, when he would guide tourists on the hunt. His good friend Richard Smith often described Noah John Rondo as, quote, escaping into life. And as Dit Ditmar put it, he wore many hats out there. He was an astronomer, poet, violinist, journalist, hunter, guide, and gardener. He applied his backwoods training to everything he did, and he built for himself a small city, Cold River City. Not far from an old lumber camp, and above the flow of the cold river, Noah built a series of wigwam-type structures that bore names like the Beauty Parlor, Pyramid of Giza, and the Garage. One wigwam was erected as a gate to the city. Noah lived in the town hall, a modest-sized cabin decorated with beaver pelts, deer antlers, and the shoulder blades of beavers. There was a hall of records, where Noah kept all of his books and journals, which he wrote in secret code, fearing that, as he called them, the consternation department would read and arrest him. Guests that joined him would often be lodged among Noah's papers. He kept his meat in the meat wigwam, and cooked inside of Mrs. Rondo's kitchen. He tended to a modest garden, growing enough to last the long winters, and hunted his fair share— and more to tide him over. Around Lake Placid, his legend grew. Richard Smith recalled, along with his friend Tony Yoki that the local barbers had stories of a man they called the Indian, who would venture into town from time to time, with a beard as untamed as the Adirondack wilderness. Smith didn't know if these stories were true, but as one day would have it, Tony Oki was at a barber shop in Lake Placid, the site of Noah's former shop itself. The owner urged their patrons, watch this. He dropped a single penny near the entryway, and as he passed... Noah picked the penny up. Oh, that old Indian head. It's been there all day. What's the use of bending to pick up an old penny? Noah replied, Oh no. It just so happens that 99 more of them make up a dollar. In the summer of 1934, following the barbershop incident, Richard Smith and Tony Oki planned to hike the Northville Lake Placid Trail. They would bring along their own homemade bows, with arrows fashioned from cattails, with nails on the ends of them. They agreed to seek out the hermit, and packed for a few days' journey. They hiked down the trail to Wanika Falls, and into the deep forest. They passed the Sawtooth Mountains, and went further on to the Cold River. This was a leisurely hike of the trail. The two men would stop and shoot their arrows into the trees and snack on chocolate and raisins. They stumbled upon an old cache and dined on sardines and stale donuts that had been nibbled on by mice. At 7 p.m. that night, the two were making camp. Tony had gone off to look for wood to build a fire when he heard the thwap of an axe against wood. Could it be the hermit? Together the two followed the sounds as they became louder and louder. The smell of a campfire drifted on the wind. Yellow and orange embers danced in the air, and they can see a man silhouetted against the wigwams and cabins built there. Richard was the first to call out hello to the man. He had been hiking with a Marlin 30 30 and Noah was fixated on it, as if he were studying the gun. You must be George Smith's boy, Noah said. And if you're going to deny it, then explain why you have his old chicken hawk Marlin 30 He added, I'll venture a guess you're George Smith's youngest, and that you've got fiery red hair under your cap. From that moment, a lifelong friendship was forged. Noah would spend his final years at Richard Smith's camp. But Noah would make numerous friendships over the years. Here's a short clip of Dit Ditmar fondly remembering his friend Noah John Rondo.
1: A lot to your life when he was such a character. Because he would come out of the woods, right? And he'd go to the conventions and they would... They would... He, they would present him like the mountain man of the Adirondacks, and I think he kind of liked that publicity, don't you? Yeah, they took him to the sportsman shows. Yeah. I think that's what you were talking about. Yeah, the about. shows. He always did come out once for a month, every, mo- every year, uh, to visit his nephew and, and stayed in Black Brook. And uh, then he would go on back in. But uh, in 1950, we had a, a terrific blowdown and uh, it just so happened it was, I think, October the 30th and it just so happened that was the day that Noah decided he was going to come out for the month and uh, it might have been more than a month sometimes because he talked about uh, uh, Christmas uh, with his people. But anyway uh, he came out in in 1950 and uh, somehow dodged the trees that were all coming down. He only got out part of the way, and he stayed at Ampersam Camp, one of the Rockefellers' camps, and uh, finally did get out to uh, to the uh, civilization, but he was never able to go back. That was, that was it. it. That was it. Yep. That was the end of it. Yep. But once again, like you, he had all of his memories to deal with. yep. yep. And he would, uh, I was fascinated by the fact that he had more than one camp. Uh, and, and he had many camps around. He well, had so to st- speak, I guess, yeah. Little they, stashes of things in different places. He, Mary and I w- were walking out through the woods with him one day, and uh, he said, just a minute, that stump there, I got some uh, sugar there. Yeah, he go isn't over that amazing? and he'd reach into the stump and out came the sugar in a, in a, in a, in a jar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, he had things cashed away I like wonder that. how many things he's got that are still buried somewhere that oh, nobody there. ever found. Probably is. Probably is there. <laughs> well, you know, there are spots.
0: Lou Russell used to bring Noah his mail. Once he became a celebrity in 1946, many people wrote to him. He would truck in other supplies as well by donkey. And when important mail had to reach him, it would be parachuted in. After an article titled The Hermit of Cold River Appeared in the New York State Conservationist in 1946, he achieved a bit of celebrity status, and in 1947, a letter invited him to New York City to lecture on living in the wilderness, and he accepted. In his years following 1950, when a storm destroyed much of his wilderness home, Noah would lecture to anyone that wanted to hear about his life as a hermit. He would charge $25, plus travel and food expenses. He spent the last few years of his life lodged with friends that loved him, and whom he loved. What drives some men and women to the woods to slough off life in favor of simple woodland life? Is it the call of the trees, the wink of snow from a mountaintop? For some, for Noah, it is a life unencumbered, a life free from the customs of superficiality and overabundance. The most famous hermit of the last thirty years is a man named Christopher Knight. He spent twenty-seven years in the main wilderness, not too far removed from society but still hidden. They called him the Hermit, and in the wild burglarized a number of cabins near his home in order to survive before being arrested in 2013. Knight desired true isolation, a rare claim even by today's standards. Noah, on the other hand, desired freedom. He had many friends, and many more sought him out for his wisdom and skills in the woods. There is a plaque affixed to a tree near Noah John Rondo's hermitage. It reads, Noah John Rondo, Adirondack Hermit, the last of the last. Here dwelt Noah Rondo, a hermit some say, year upon year, day after day. He knew nature's creatures, and all of the wood lore. The hermit he was, he is no more. What it is, what it is. Written by a friend of the mountains. Before we close this out, I wanted you to hear Noah's own voice, so here's a small clip.
2: Well, did you, did you consider yourself a hermit? Well, in a sense, maybe. Of course, I knew I was a recluse, and I went back. And uh, I only came out about once a year, sometimes twice, and just to get groceries. And there was one time I stayed in 376 days without coming out. And I had my little garden. I got fish in summer, venison in winter, and went out once a year and bought bought staple groceries. Mm -hmm. Did you keep warm in your diggings? Oh, yes. I wish you'd describe uh, your camp when you were living in it. The camps were about nine feet long and seven feet wide inside. Had about four foot sidewalls and a six foot ridge. Mm -hmm. And what did you sleep on? Oh, I made me a bed. I made me a box out of old boards from the lumber camp. A box, a belt, oh, a foot deep, and pretty near three feet wide and six feet long. Then there was old uh, water pails, and the hunters had put bullets through them. They were discarded a long time ago, but they were galvanized, so the metal was good. (coughs) I took four of them pails, turned them bottom side up, for the corners of the bed and put my box on that and made a bed of hay and boughs in there, threw in a couple deer skins and maybe a blanket, and then I had another good blanket to cover up with and sometimes had a couple bear skins in there along with that did regular you, nest. Did you always manage to keep warm? Noah? Oh, yes. You never were cold or uncomfortable? No, not in that camp. Uh, It could have been too warm. And I've had a fire. What was it?
0: 83 days without relighting with a match. Leona Raymond Warner said friends fondly remembered the hermit's kindness and his interest in the forest creatures that populated his world. They in turn accepted him for exactly what he was a warm, capable citizen of this planet. Noah's legend is larger than life. And as the author of The Hermit of Cold River wrote it, he was one in 14 million. This episode was written and researched by me with research assistance from my friend Taylor at Blue Box UFO on Twitter. He is the co-host of the Podcastica, which is a Doctor Who podcast and the If Memory Serves podcast, whom he co-hosts with his brother. Both are great pods, and I highly recommend you check them out. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Noah John Rondo, I can't recommend William J. O'Hearn's books enough. He did extensive interviews with many of those who knew Noah, and even visited his old stomping grounds. I will link all of his Noah-specific books in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Another way you can help is by becoming a patron. Patrons receive bonus audio and early access to the episodes when available. Head on over to patreon.com slash or ourstrangeskies.com now to become a patron. And while you're at our website, you can find show notes for the episodes, as well as links to our tea Public store and blog. Our theme song is composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. We're going to close this out with a special song courtesy of Doug Irving. It's called Noah John Rondo, and it's from the album at Andorondack Suite. It's a wonderful song from a wonderful album. Doug graciously sent me four of his CDs, and all of them are wonderful. Uh, thank you again, Doug, for doing that. Uh, my absolute favorite is an album called Fire Towers and Chanties. Their songs are fantastic. And they do a great job of capturing rural life of the Adirondacks. So check out his CDs. You can learn more about Doug and his music by visiting foolshillmusic.com slash Doug Irving. And you can check out his music on Spotify as well. Finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies, or over the skies of Cold River City, Population 1. In the Adirondacks, we trust. He was born near Sable
3: Forks in the summer of 83, but he ran away from home before the turn of the century. But he read a lot of books and he studied the stars, but he wanted to be alone. So he became a Naderondeger hermit, no, John Rondo. He never thought of himself as a hermit, just a fiercely private man. But he wrote about his own life. With a pain in his hand. He lived far enough away from civilization. You would hear his violin. But he played for the creatures in the forest and occasional human. Noah John Rondo. He was the self proclaimed mayor of Coal River City. Population 1. Noah John Rondo. Noah was his name, and he never would complain. Goes living off the land, made him happy. Stubborn in his ways, right until his final days in the hollow. Noah John Rondo. Noah John Rondo from the western. The Racket River, he'd hunt and fish and trap no more John Rondo. Rondo. Sometimes he ran a file on the conservation department, spent a little time in jail. Well, they flew him to a show in New York City in the fall of 47, where he showed everyone how he lived up in the mountains. At the age of 84, Noah John passed away. They say he died of a natural cause. By then, most people around the country knew about the legend he was. He looked a lot like Santa Claus. Noah John Rondon. know. Noah John Rondon. John No Noah was his name and he never would complain Cause living off the land made him happy